podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It's a Desert Island Goals and I'm very excited. Well, first of all, to be hosting it because it's normally Andy, but it's me, John Gibbons, this time. And I'm also delighted to be joined uh, by Professor Phil Scrayton, um, who is known best, in, certainly in this city, for his considerable work and research on the Hillsborough disaster, particularly as part of the Hillsborough Independent Panel and also as author of Hillsborough The Truth. Um, he is back home in Liverpool uh, this week to appear at the Writing of the Wall Festival to discuss the social and political consequences of criminalisation, but first, he's joined us to talk about his passion and love Liverpool Football Club, and yeah, we're delighted to we're delighted to share this time with you, Phil. Well, it's great, John. I mean, it's 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 also good to be able to just sit and relax and talk about you know your history with the club rather than just focusing simply on Hillsborough. Although Hillsborough is such an important part of the club's history now, and it's a very important part of my life. But it is uh, in a season that has been just so spectacular and is yet to be finished, you know, and um, we're all now building up for the great game in Madrid. Uh, It's just great to be able to talk about, personally, I suppose, about my own time, my own sort of growing up with the club um, from those early days when, of course, um, I'm old enough now to say my childhood, we were in the second division all those years ago and, and I think you know we're going to come on and talk about your, your, your three goals that you've picked but I did uh, I think you're the first guest we've had on Desert Island Goals who's also done Desert Island Discs so I was just um, <laughs> oh, wondering yeah. what, what were the harder choices the, uh, the the goals or the music oh the music by a long shot I mean <laughs> I had a short list for the music of 23 tracks uh, and they said they'd never had anybody on Desert Island Discs who not only specified the tracks but specified the exact minutes and seconds of the tracks they wanted to hear and of course it was always only really seven choices not eight because everybody knew I'd be finishing with you never walk alone so you know even the connection with with today was it was in desert island discs because obviously there were references to Liverpool references to the club but also historically references to my own growing up you know on Merseyside so I want to talk about that time going up on Merseyside first. Be- before we get to your goals, the three yeah. goals you've picked, um, because you obviously you grew up in Wallasey, you were born in Wallasey, and I know your dad used to take you as a young boy. So I just want to get some of your early, very earliest memories of supporting Liverpool, if we can, before we start, Phil. Yeah, my, my dad my dad was from Liverpool, and my mum was from Birkenhead, and I was born in Victoria um, General Hospital in, 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 in Wallasey. Uh, and so I spent those early years there. My dad was very ill from when I was five years old. And although he'd been a, a massive Liverpool supporter, uh, he wasn't able to take me to the match. We also had very little money. Not that going to football in those days was that expensive. But he just couldn't get me over there. So I would have been, I suppose, around six or seven when I went to, well, I probably had been earlier, but my first memory is sitting on his knee in what was then the main stand. I'll come back to that later (laughs) in the main stand and watching them play Grimsby. And that match was remarkable because they won 3-2, their second division. Uh, I think we were going to be languishing in the second division at that point forever, although we had one of the great players of all time, Billy Little. And uh, in that match, uh, Little scored two goals, won a penalty that went in off the underside of the bar. I'm I'm still surprised to this day that the bar withstood the ferocity <laughs> of the kick. And it was great. It was a 3-2 win against Grimsby. It was the time when we were just about on the road to development, but not full development. Uh, although there were some great players in that team. Tommy Younger, I, I remember, was in goal. And I wanted my mum to buy me a, a yellow jumper, because, which I couldn't, I wouldn't have seen dead in now, but a yellow jumper because Tommy Younger always wore a yellow jumper and most players wore green. But it was great. And, um, but, but there's a, an association with this because Billy Little scores that goal. He becomes my hero. So I'm kicking the, the, um, the ball around the backyard, pretending I'm both Billy Little and Tommy Younger. Uh, all in one. And um, what happens then is eventually, years later, I uh, I go to Liverpool University and um, I never thought 
nobody in our family ever thought they'd go to university and I certainly didn't think I would go to university and I discovered that Billy was um, an accountant in the in in the university offices so uh, I went over to see him um, and I told him I'd been sent by my department which I hadn't (laughs) (laughs) well I just wanted to meet him you know and uh, I went in and he just looked at me with a very doer face and he could tell that I, I, I was, you know, I was scamming. And um, I just said to him, look, I had to come over because you're my hero. And uh, I was really kind of moved. And, and he looked at me and I've never forgotten his comment. This modest man turned around to me and he said, I'm no hero, I'm a footballer. And I just thought that was remarkable. You know, at that stage, this guy who was idolised in Anfi- at Anfield, yeah. who now moved on, was saying to you, you know, hang on a minute, I'm just a person. And um, I told this story to my students about, I don't know, it must have been about eight or nine years ago. And one of my postgraduates heard about it. She was South African. And when she got her PhD, and I'd been her supervisor, she gave me a sepia-type photograph of Billy Little and a signed, his signed autograph beneath it, which she'd sourced from somewhere. It's now framed in, in our hall. And that was like, that sort of topped off that story in a way. But it was, it was about, I kind of felt with him, there was a reminder at a, at a very early age for me, you know, just going into higher education, going to university, which I, I thought I was, I was going to have to tap on the shoulder and tell, get out, you're a fraud, or, <laughs> or whatever, you shouldn't be here. It's all these people who didn't speak like me and all the rest of it were there. And um, it, was just, it was just remarkable that this man was himself so humble, and it reminded me very early on about the real meaning of humility. So, you know, that was tied into that pre- millionaire, pre, you know, big money sort of uh, attitude. And I've got to say that when I went to the club a few weeks ago to talk about Hillsborough to all the first team players, do you know what? I'll, I'll say absolutely clearly that I just felt that same kind of modesty running through the club at the moment amongst the players. Mm. You know, these multi-multi-millionaires, Billy Little was light years away from them. Fantastic stuff. Little doesn't make it into your, into your frio, though. It's, it's great to, to hear that, that story and, and what a hero he was to so many of, of kind of that generation, really. But we do start in, in 1965, yeah. and it's it's apt, really, that just after the weekend, after the uh, FA Cup final, we, we start with the uh, with the FA Cup, and what a big deal it was for Liverpool to, to win the FA Cup, first of all, for the, for the first time that year. Yeah, I mean, I've got to contextualise it because... Um... Uh, by this time, I was going to some games, but I was in a seminary. I went to a seminary. I know a lot of people find that difficult to believe, but I went to a seminary when I was 12 years old, and that was up in Durham. So you're away for basically 40-odd weeks of the year from your family. And it was amazing that uh, the only way we ever knew how, what, how the matches had gone, because it's a real closed-down place, was that the priests who were interested in football would tell you what the scores had been that previous weekend. The 1st of May 1965 was the day we were returning to Durham. It was Usher College in Durham. And we were on a coach (coughs) and we stopped at Kirby Stephen for some sort of afternoon lunch or whatever. And the match was on in this place in a small black and white television. You can imagine a coachload of kids from, (laughs) well, not just kids, there were quite a few older ones there as well, from Merseyside going up to Usher, crouched around this little tiny black and white TV. And it was nil-nil, extra time. Um, Oh, I and uh, Jerry Byrne had broken his collarbone and had to play the rest of the game with a broken collarbone. Um, And Liverpool, of course, had never won the Cup. Now, this is the real reason I'm choosing it, because Leeds were a hard team in more ways than one. And, you know, I think they'd won the league that year. Well, I think, yeah, I know they did. And then Roger Hunt scored with this crouching header in extra time. And you thought, 
maybe this is it. Maybe we can dream. Maybe for the first time in our history, we're going to win the cup. And then who's going to pop up but the bet noir of Liverpool, Billy Bremner, um, you know, and he equalises. So you're thinking this is all over. You know, they're going to get another one because Liverpool go on to the back foot now, all of that. And then Cali um, made a run. And he comes down with the ball like he did so many times. And his his centre wasn't perfect because it was slightly behind St. John. And if you look at the photos now, you can see it. He somehow propels himself backwards, but his head forwards <laughs> at the same time. So his body's in this really curious angle in relation to the goal. But he didn't half wallop it. He must have knocked his head off. And um, in it goes. And that was just remarkable and we were we were all of us from Merseyside by this time quite a few of us would have been Liverpool supporters in my early days nobody supported Liverpool because they were in the second division um but it was fantastic and it was just the goal for me that uh, that 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 showed you that football could be so unpredictable but it also came from a great hero you know what would you do if um, Christ came to Liverpool, if you remember, was the hoarding, and it was move St John to outside left, you know, <laughs> and it was like that. That 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 was the sort of time, and he captured that moment, and it was just it was just great. Of course, a year later, I was out of the seminary. I then saw all the World Cup matches, even though they were played at Goodison Park. The only time that I ever went into Goodison Park, I must admit. Um, not that I'm a prejudiced sort of person. I was there for the 5-3, um, the 5-3 Portugal win over Korea. Wow. I mean, what a game that was. 3-0 up at half-time against Portugal. But I went to all of that, saw Pele, got his autograph, um, uh, Eusebio, who was such a gentle guy. Uh, that all came the year after, and Liverpool were now on the road. You know, this was going to be... Um, uh, a spectacular period in Liverpool's history. The, there's one other goal that that doesn't make it into, my, in, and you'll see why, into my three, that comes in December 1967. I'm in the paddock on the halfway line, there's snow on the ground, and Cali um, features in this as well. Uh, and Gary Sprake, who played brilliantly, brilliantly for, for, for Leeds, gets the ball at the cop end. He goes to throw it out to one of his defenders, which is what all goalies do these days, but didn't used to hoof it up the pitch in those days. And as he goes to do it, Cali sees him and runs forward. And he goes to throw it, and somehow he realises, hesitates, the ball sticks to his glove, he does a complete circle with his arm, and he throws it into his own net at the cop end. <laughs> And, I, and so it didn't make it into my top three because I think that would be cruel. <laughs> but we all stood there and went, is, is that or isn't that a goal? Will that be allowed? Of course it's allowed. He's chucked it in his own net. But that was, uh, that was another moment at that time that was just like, you know, st really sticks in my mind. And I was watching that from the halfway line in the paddock, which is the spec that I always used to try and get to every week, meet the same people there. You mentioned Cali there a couple of times. He's got the record appearances for yeah. Liverpool. It'll yeah. probably never be beaten. You know, it's it's such a yeah. remarkable number. I think people sort of my generation or or, or younger, Lizzie who's here, younger than me, probably know him just for his games, but rather than kind of anything he yeah. particularly did. If you could just talk a little bit for, for the likes of us, what kind of player he was, because he must have been a remarkable one to play that many. I, I've got a feeling, and I might be wrong on this, it's somehow stuck in the back of my mind. He was only ever booked once. And this was a player who was getting, you know, he's up against Norman Hunter, fullbacks, well, like Tommy in our team, Tommy Smith, mm. fullbacks who took no prisoners. You know, it wasn't just a slide tackle, it was a destruction job. That's how they played at the back. Cali played all those games with all those knocks. He never once ever got up and protested. Never once. I never saw him. Ever. I mean, most of us, our reaction would have been, right on our feet, you know, confronting. He just got up and walked away. And it's funny, I was in the Albert a couple of years ago with my son. He was over from Germany, our Paul. And we'd been going around a few places, and I was in the Albert. And I saw these people looking at me, and then one came over and said, are you Phil Scraton? And I said, yeah, oh, thank you so much for... 
Hillsborough, I said, look, it's not to do with me. It's the families that you have to thank. I mean, I did what I could. And they said, we've got someone we, we, we want you to meet. It's a guy called Phil. And I said, oh, yeah, there's two of us, like. And he goes, yeah. And they bring the guy over, and it was Phil Callaghan. And he was Ian's brother. And I just looked at him, and I said, you know, who am I to say this to you? But there are so many people of my generation who are really grateful for what your brother brought to our club. The honesty, the commitment, the speed, the brilliance, you know, the outstanding. He, he would have been an outstanding player today. He would have been a brilliant overlapping player down down the wing, you know. Uh, and when you had players of his calibre, Phil Thompson was another, player of his calibre widening the game. I mean, I'm no pundit, but, you know, I know that if you play down the wings, you know, you, you're going to do well, as we've seen just recently in our time. So, you know, Callie was just a great person, uh, a lovely man, very, very modest. Um, I think even if he'd have been playing today with all the money, with all of the glory, all that goes with it, he would still be the same guy. And I think that that honesty was so, so clear with him. But, you know, the fact that he, he, he played so many matches, he managed, like Teddy Sheringham did, managed to play so many matches and be kicked around the park. And it, I don't know what his body was made of. Whatever it was, I would like it to be injected into mine, please. <laughs> <laughs> and just before we move on from the, the 65 final, you know, you obviously don't get to join any of the celebrations. You're up in the, up in the northeast, but... I mean the celebrations that you know we, we've seen on the, on the screens and, yeah. and what it meant to the city of oh, Liverpool yeah. to win that FA Cup for the first time and you know, you've got Shankly taking it all in and yeah. you know incredible scenes. Yeah, I mean I think that what it did was it it gave a lift to the city at a time of real difficulty. We've got to remember the docks were only decasualised in the early sixties that uh, there was a lot of unemployment, a lot of poverty, um, still is. Um, but at that time, there was no regeneration. The city was was not in a great state during that period of time. And one of the things, without over-romanticising it, one of the things that um, soccer did was it gave a great lift. You know, it was something that people really could connect to, something that people could be part of. Having said that, I do think that to a large extent, a lot of a, a lot of us as fans were taken for granted because the difference between the directors of a club in those days and the terraces was massive, you know. And um, I, I I do feel that there was always that kind of underlying tension. But the the most important thing for me um, was the lift it gave to people on the street, the belief it gave to people that that um, they they could just get involved and just enjoy it. And it wasn't all about just about glory hunting and, and so on. There was something there about the, the guts, the fabric. And it, it, it extended to both teams, you know, Everton. Um, I nearly said both teams, Liverpool and Tramier. <laughs> um, I used to go to Brenton Park on a Friday night. But um, no, but, but it's extended to both teams, Liverpool and Everton. And I think both teams grew strong out of that commitment and out of that feeling in the city, that emotion in the in the city. And really appreciated good football, you know, if you think about the young kid at, uh, at, um, at Goodison Park, you know, the Golden Vision, yeah. all of that, you know, it was, it was a great period. You know, are we the School of Science? Are we the Faculty of Arts? We were both both, you know. We both had skill. We both had great planning and all the rest of it. And it was, it was a great time, really, and gave a lift during a period when, to a large extent, the city economically, politically was on its knees. So we'll go from the 60s into the 70s and from Shankly into Paisley and the remarkable success that, that Paisley had that must have been difficult to predict, really. You know, I mean, yeah. there's, if you go back yeah. to 1974 and the, and the famous video of, of, of young children getting asked if Shankly's retired, I don't believe it, and things like that, but Paisley comes in you know, and, and and does even better in terms of success. Obviously, Shankly builds the foundations, but it's a it's a Paisley European goal that you've picked, but there could have been so many under Paisley because so many trophies and so many kind of highlights. Yeah, I mean, I kind of got concerned about when I was trying to pick out three. It's impossible, isn't it? That they suddenly became big goals in big tournaments rather than great goals in ordinary matches. 
Um, but it wasn't about that. It was about my own, I suppose, personal story. And I think that the succession of Paisley, um, you know, to Paisley from Shankly, people talk about the boot room, people talk about how this kind of dynasty was created and therefore it was passing it on one to the other. You couldn't have had two more different men than Bill Shankly and Bob Paisley. They might have had the same intuitiveness in terms of the game. They might have thought about the game in the same way. They might have had player management in similar style. But as two people, I mean, Bob Paisley, who saw this quiet, understated, uh, very modest. Shankly was modest as well in his own way. But, you know, nobody knew Paisley's politics. Everybody knew Shankly's mm-hmm. politics. You know, and it was that difference, <coughs> it was that distinctiveness. But at the same time, he was building or continuing the building of a, a team that was almost um, almost perfect. And, um, you know... The second, the second goal I've chosen, um, I've chosen because I was at the match and it wasn't a good match. Um, we'd all watched the Liverpool team beat um, Borussia Mönchengladbach the previous year in Rome 3-1. Great victory, outstanding goals, incredible emotion. The city was bouncing, you know. Um, and at that time, I lived in Rainford. Uh, in a little cottage, a row of cottages, and the farm behind where I lived took in um, lodges or boarders, and Terry McDermott and um, Alan Kennedy lived there. So I used to see them every day, just going down the track next to the place. They'd never come and have a kick about. I think they thought I might injure them. But anyway, <laughs> I'll uh, show them up, maybe. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, well, of course, of course, in my dreams. I've scored some brilliant goals, some brilliant winners at Anfield, but always in my dreams. Um, but, you know, they were living in the farmhouse. They used to have some great parties there, I have to say, not, not on um, night before matches. Um, but, you know, I managed to get tickets for the um, 1978 European Cup final. And we went down to Wembley. And it was going to be, it, we, no football, you never think a football match is going to be a walkover. It was going to be easier, we thought, than the previous years, and we'd won the previous years 3 1. Um, I seem to remember, I mean, I've been trying to recollect all of this, but my recollection was it was a doer game, you know. If Liverpool had managed to get an early goal, it would have brought them out of their shell, you know. But it didn't happen. And uh, and we were such big favourites. There were a few near misses in the first half, and then Liverpool were kicking into the goal from the end, the other end from where I was. And then uh, what then happened was uh, this this incredible moment that you only ever see occasionally. It was a, it's like that magical thing where everything goes well, but in your head it stays in slow motion. You know, you almost see it in slow motion. And I just remember the ball coming out of defence, landing at Graham Sinessa's feet. And the, their defence was crowded, but he saw a gap and he played this exquisite pass. And Kenny was onto it like a shot. Hardly touched the ball as the goalie came flying out, did this remarkable chip over the goalie. And it was the one goal. It was the one moment of absolute magic. Uh, it was just wonderful um, to see it. Um, but I, I seem to also remember, you know, football, isn't it? It's about excitement and big moments like that. It's also about relief. You know, you're thinking, we're never going to score here. Um, it was a forgettable match. You know, you, you would never watch that match even the highlights, there weren't many highlights on telly, you know. But that was so important. And it was so important, I think, as well, because had Liverpool not won that match, um, I think that it it would have stopped us in our tracks at a moment of really strong development, especially given the expectation was so high. So although it's 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 a goal that not an awful lot of people might pick, I pick it because I was there, I pick it because of my own excitement about it, but I also pick it because I think it was a turning moment. You know, it could have turned the wrong way after that because Liverpool would have come away from having been beaten by Bruges 
they'd come away feeling, you know, really that they'd failed, Mm -hmm. having been so brilliant in Rome. And a European final at Wembley is a kind of a rare thing. I mean, it must have been exciting having a Scouse deluge kind of down there and and, and all the trains, buses and motorways, I'm sure, all all full of Liverpool fans just wanted to be part of it. Yeah, I mean, and by then, of course, we were beginning to... We were beginning to... It was just the beginning of our trips to Wembley. And, you know, the jokes were always... Well, until the white suits occurred or the cream suits occurred, (laughs) the jokes were always, this is our our, um, second pitch, you know, this is our, our second stadium. But um, yeah, it was. It was. It was those those days. I remember not just nostalgically. They were about just droves of people going down, particularly on motorways and you know with the coaches and everything else, with just a sea of red and white. So it is nostalgic, but it is also uh, quite a significant point in the building of a great club, you know. Uh, and I think it's it. And it, and it was pre-PLC, it was pre-big money, you know. Well, the big money was coming into the game, but it wasn't being seen. <laughs> it wasn't being seen on the terraces for sure, but or by a lot of the players. But but I think it was it was a period of time to which today we owe a lot, if you know what I mean. You know, you could always say we wouldn't be where we are without history. Of course, that's true. But there are certain directions that clubs and that the game takes. As a as 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 a consequence of things that happen within the game, it was also part of the opening up the realization um, that uh, an English team could. I mean, Celtic had already done it as a Scots team, but Scottish team. But it was the realization that uh, an English team could, you know, mix it with the best, you know, with the Milan's, with the Barcelona, you know, Real Madrid. You know all of those, all of those big teams, and then eventually the German teams. That uh, you could not only just do it once, but you could come back and do it again. And I think that that was, um, I think that was a big, I think it was a big point in our history. Uh, and and I think it also laid the ghost of the famous Inter Milan game. You know, and the referee who, speaking now as a completely objective, uh, critical scholar. And criminologist, <laughs> criminologist must must have been at least partly um, scripted, if not paid. <laughs> I can't really say that, but you know what I'm saying. Um, so it, it laid the ghost of, into, of that Inter Milan um, period, and I think it was it was just brilliant. And it's a goal by the King as well, who is someone who I'm sure, you know, you, you hold a huge regard for as a player, as a manager and as, and as a person. I'm sure you've got to know him a little bit and, and what a person he's been for this city and what a player he was for the football club. I'm really pleased you've, you've said that because, um, you know, I don't accept awards easily. I, I do what I do and I do it to the best of my ability. I don't, I don't look to be rewarded for that. Um, And as you know, it's pretty well known that I turned down the Queen's Honour, if that's what you could call it. Um, And I did it because there is no way I would accept an honour for what I do for my job of that nature. And I certainly, I would not accept an honour that is given um, on behalf of the British Empire. Um, It's just not part, it's just not what something that I could even think of especially working in the north of Ireland and my own cultural history but that aside um, the honour of the freedom of the city was something different it was something about the people um, that I know the people that I have worked with and it was something about the city that I love and to receive that honour alongside Kenny and Marina Dalgleish was tremendous the three of us together um, our families together uh, and all of the Hillsborough families there in St George's Hall one of the great nights of anyone's life obviously and the modesty of Kenny and Marina saying to me we're not going to make a speech you make the speech and you know the that sort of I mean, a man of his stature to have that sort of attitude of giving always and that much, it's so well known. And there's no point in saying to him, I mean, I've had this conversation with him on numerous <coughs> occasions. There's no point in saying to Kenny, 
Kenny, you know, how is it that you are so modest? And he looks at me and he said, what are you talking about? I'm just me. You know, and that's that's the way he is. And of course he's got views. Of course he, 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 he knows what he thinks, as does Marina, as does the whole family. But they're a lovely family. And the, 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 the foundation of that is around respect for other people. His humility comes out of respect for other people. Uh, I was there when the, the Kenny Dalglish stand was dedicated. I was invited to that. I was very pleased to be there. And, you know, he just takes that all in his stride. I know he's proud. Of course he is proud internally. It was the same when we worked on the film, the Kenny film. And my section of the film had to be cut out because of the Hillsborough, um, the, the Hillsborough trials. So there's 20 minutes of me going to, to Hillsborough in the ground, which has never been seen, never been shown. But Kenny's contribution to that film is remarkable. It's about him, obviously, but his contribution to it, you know, his measured contribution, the way he is. Um, if you wanted to say to children, young people, you know, if you're successful, this is how you behave, then Kenny's the man, as is Marina, uh, the woman. And I think from my point of view, um, they have brought so much, not just to Liverpool, uh, the, the club, Liverpool, the city, but they've also brought great example. I mean, all Marina's work and charity, the hospital, everything else, they've brought great, um, they, they, they just brought great example to many others who are in the city. So I'm pleased to have that opportunity now in something that is quite light about goals to say something very serious about a truly great person and a truly great family. Yeah, yeah. Um, your third goal, final goal, uh, jumps forward quite a bit to 2005 and, and what an amazing run that was. And, you know, we're, we're, we're in, you know, we talk about your know, timings. We're in the eve of another kind of Champions League final that Liverpool have been fortunate enough to, to get to. At that point, though, it was 20 years since our last one and we were starting to wonder whether we were going to be at the top table of Europe again. And then Rafa Benitez comes in and, and gets us there and this is the goal that, that kind of secures that uh, that place in Istanbul? Yeah, I mean, to start with, before I, I start on the Liverpool-Chelsea um, game at Anfield, 2nd of May, day before my birthday, in case anyone's listening, <laughs> um, uh, 2005, if you think about it, with the exception of Stevie G and uh, Sammy, um, uh, Didi Harman, uh, Jamie, um and Luis Garcia, we weren't a great team. We were a good team, but we weren't a great team. This was not a team that, that was going to conquer Europe. You know, it, of all the teams that, were, that, that we played in Europe, uh, that we put out in Europe, this was not one of the strongest. Um, no way. And um, having held Chelsea nil nil, uh, we went to the, um, we went to, 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 to get tickets queued up. Ten hours. Ten, Ten hours. hours. Up. Started the queue down almost by Goodison Park, right round Stanley Park. And I had a pal who was overstaying with me, a woman professor from, um, from, from Finland, who I've got to say has done the right thing and brought both her kids up as Liverpool fans. <laughs> but she wasn't even coming to the game, but I needed four tickets. So she queued, she queued up with me. What a hero. As she was. <laughs> and um, ten hours later... We were amongst the last to get tickets. And, of course, the tickets were restricted view main stand. So I'm thinking, what are, what's, what's the restriction? I'm not going to even be able to see the game. <laughs> I'm still going. So we got in and um, I went with our Sean and we were only slightly restricted. It was a post that was by the halfway line. But this is why I've chosen the goal. Um, we were directly behind the corner flag at the cop end. We couldn't see the goal posts. We could just see one post. That's how much we were on the line. We were looking right down the line. So there's the clue. Early on, Stevie G puts um, Milan Boris, Boris through and he chipped Peter Cech and the ball lands with Louis Garcia and he did the rest. 
Now, I want to say, I want to place it on record for all time. Everybody knows that I'm completely objective, <laughs> right? <laughs> there is no question the ball was over the line. I was directly in line with it. I could see the whole, like the water boys could see the whole of the moon. <laughs> I could see the whole of the ball over the line. I saw it in slow motion. And it's still in my head in slow motion. I have that capacity. So whatever Mourinho complains, whatever these RAF people who did this international study of how the ball couldn't have completely crossed the line, <laughs> I had the perfect, objective, scientific view. There is no question. Um, and of course, it's really memorable, um, not only because of the goal itself, because it laid the ground for what became the most remarkable European Cup final ever played. That was something else. And our Paul, who was in Berlin and still is, he managed to get there. And he said to me, Dad, we were 3-0 down at half-time. So many people around me left, he said. And one of them in particular, who'd been so abusive of our team. He was a Liverpool fan. He went. And he said, and I just thought this team, this AC Milan team is great. Yeah. If we're going to lose 6-0, I'm going to watch this great team. And then he said, the impossible happened. And we all know the impossible happened. And I think that one of the things about it, we're talking about goals, <clears throat> but in the Chelsea game that we won 1-0, um, there was a remarkable save by Jersey Dudek. A remarkable save. And he goes and does it again in extra time in the final. So if I was talking about three great saves, you know, either of those saves would make it into my top three, even though a lot of people saw him as a clown and because he clowned around. Yeah. But it, it, isn't, it isn't true. I mean, sometimes a goalkeeper wins you the match. And he certainly made a major contribution that year to us winning the Euro the most improbable European Cup final we've ever won. I mean, this year against Spurs, obviously we've got a totally different team. We've got a team that's almost run away with the league if it hadn't been for our, our, uh, our counterparts just up the road, um, up the East Lanks. But, you know, th this wasn't a team like that. You know, today's team is nothing like that team was. And with the exception of a few that I've mentioned who were excellent players you know, um, Stevie and Jamie, homegrown, you know, um, it wasn't one of the great. So there are so many great moments in all of this and so many great goals. I mean, look at who I've missed out. One of my all-time heroes, Roger Hunt, Kevin Keegan, Tosh. You know, for all this, you know, people talk about uh, how Peter Crouch is tall and gangly. Well, we had our own tall guy, but he never looked gangly. He never looked, he, he never looked as though he was going to trip over his boots. Um, the man himself, Stevie G. Why haven't I mentioned Olympiakos? Mm. You know, he turned that game round. Why haven't I mentioned him? Why? Well, I am mentioning him because I could have, I could have chosen three goals that Stevie had had yeah. scored that were three of the greatest goals. Michael Owen, um, Fernando Torres. They've all given us so much. To say nothing of the the dynamic team that we we have now and I think this that brings me to today because it very nearly made it into the it very nearly made it into the, the the most memorable goals at Anfield um who could have imagined that when we won that corner 3-0 up the Trent Alexander-Arnold who was putting the ball down and he could see Shakiri running towards him to take the corner who could have thought that he just, in a blink of an eye, could see the total disarray um, of the defence ahead of him? One of the great defences of all time. This Barcelona defence were just organising themselves. He saw that. This young guy just goes, the ball's in play, the ball's going to be in play. You know, there's Divock Origi, just get it to him. And the next thing, the ball's in the net. And everyone's looking, going, is it a goal? Isn't it a goal? Of course it's a goal. Yeah. And to the importance and significance of that goal 
to this season, you know, and to 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 Madrid. When you're three nil up against Barcelona, you have to really kick yourself and say, none of us saw that coming. None of us. Um, and and it was that was a tremendous goal because the reason I think it didn't make it into the three because I wanted historic sort of context, but it very close. It was very close to my three, simply because of the intuition of this young guy who is always thinking on his feet. You know, you can see him all the time. You can see how much he castigates himself whenever he gets something wrong, when he doesn't get a perfect cross in. And there he is, the two fullbacks this season with so many um, assists. You know, it's just a tremendous um, tribute to the style of football that Liverpool play. But it's a tremendous tribute to the manager as well because I think that his line of is always think the impossible. You know, think the impossible. You see him at opportunity, take it. I'm not going to get you in the dressing room afterwards and tell you you did a stupid thing. You saw some... And that could have gone so wrong. He could have kicked it straight to a fullback. He could have missed his kick. You know, he could have... It's all fractions, isn't it? And, you know, Divock Origi receiving this with his side onto the goal, hooking it, could have gone over the bar, could have hit the post, could have hit the goalie, could have gone anywhere. But straight into the net, it was the perfect moment. So, in a way, that's my fourth But it's lovely to hear you talk about football so passionately from the kind of the late 50s up until now. And as you mentioned earlier, football's changed quite a lot in yeah. terms of you know, the money and, yeah. and different kind of things involved. Um, what is it, do you think, and I know this is a kind of big question, but what is it that you think that keeps your passion for Liverpool Football Club, in particular and for football generally, kind of so high throughout, throughout all this period and throughout all this change? Well, in a way, I'm pleased you've asked me that because um, there was a period when I became completely disillusioned. Um, I'd always look for the scores. I'd always watch it on the telly. I mean, you know, I was such a passionate fan that I can remember when our Paul was very young, I went to the match and I was up in the Camden Road stand and I had a big coach. My, my dad's old army great coach. He was never in the army. I don't know where he got it from. <laughs> and um, probably the back of a lorry. And I was in and suddenly somebody said, is there a baby in here? Because they could hear this crying. And I had to fess up and open my coat up. Our Paul was in a sling on my front. Brilliant. And he was, um, I was trying to work it out. He was about eight months old. And I'd taken him to his first match. We drew 1-1 against Ipswich. I was a bit disappointed about that. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'd always had that love for the game and always had a quirky relationship with it. I'd always worried about it. I'd always worried. I'd, I'd been in so many big crowds um, where we were only inches away. I mean, the famous Wolverhampton-Liverpool game when we, we won the League 3-1 um, in the last 10 minutes. And um, there was a massive crush because the back gate collapsed. People fell into the ground. Everyone was crushed at the front. I was young with my mate, just up onto the terraces, pulling people out. I remember pulling an old guy out. I say, old guy, he was younger than I am now. And, you know, it was, it was, it was awful. We'd we'd had all the warning signs that the clubs weren't looking after the fans. They weren't looking after the terraces. Grounds that were supposed to be really good were decrepit. And then, of course, the inevitable happened. And when Hillsborough happened, it was only the second semi-final that I'd missed because my boys were very young. And um, I knew from day one, uh, that night in the Crown in Liverpool, people coming back from, uh, from the game, all had the same story. They didn't know each other. They all had mm. the same story. And it was all absolutely clear. And I just thought, hang on a minute, you know, football isn't that important, you know, that we can have people losing their lives. It's just, you know, it's just banal how this has happened. It's appalling how this, is, how this has happened. And it's, it's about something that is rotten in the game. Everyone was talking about what was rotten in soccer was violence. Yes, there was violence, but it was nothing like the neglect of the fans, the neglect of the stadiums, the neglect of um, of their best interests. The, uh, we used to, I've said before, you know, we used to cheer when people passed out on the cop and were passed down over people's heads and put on a stretcher. What you realise when you're older is that they are only three minutes away from death. 
as Hillsborough proved. Mm. You know, once you're crushed and you can't get up, once you, your chest is impacted, you've only got three minutes to live. And, yeah, we used to, you know, and if it was a woman who was passed down, people had wolf whistle, all of that sort of stuff. And that isn't about fans. That's about the neglect, the institutional neglect of the stadium. And so it wasn't just Hillsborough that was that was a place that was dangerous. There were lots of dangerous stadium at the time. Um, and so I kind of I kind of lost my love for the game. Um, you know, um, when somebody who was the club was selling in the shop, you know, the famous Shankly quote, you know, that football um, is not a matter of life or death, it's more important than that, more significant than that. And they put it on the side of mugs. I went into the shop and said, get those out of here. You can't do this after Hillsborough. You can't say... You, I know he never meant it like that. Mm. Of course he didn't. But you can't say that. You can't allow that to be a public statement. And... Um, I insisted that they, and they did, they got rid of that off all the merchandise that they were going to, they'd ordered to sell and I, and tribute to them. But I mean, the club is entirely different now in terms of its understanding, in terms of its grasp, in terms of its support for families, for survivors, in terms of ensuring that the 96 is on the back of all those shirts and that the meaning is understood. I think that's a, a whole new era of understanding. It wasn't always like that historically. And I think that um, from my own point of view, the um, the rejuvenation of my own interest, I mean, I'd always watched the score. Of course, I was always a red. I still have the scarf I wore when I went to that Grimsby game um, when I was seven years old. I still have it. And um, in the evening, I was doing to f raise funds for for the um, young drama dramatists in in the Everyman and the Playhouse with Kim Cattrall, um, I pulled out our first. I pulled out a copy of the the Echo from the first time the Echo had done it in colour from our nine from our, our big our first ever European victory, and um, I gave her a copy because I have a spare copy of that, and um, I gave her a copy of my book. And I got out my, my scarf and I said, but you're not having that. <laughs> and, and that's at home. And that, but but that, that real generation of spirit, that real feeling had gone. It had died in me. Um, and then I thought of, right, okay, so you've got to separate out the enjoyment of sport, and the, the, you know, the enjoyment of why you do it, why you played it, why you watch it, and why you continue to, and the terrible, appalling, avoidable disaster that was Hillsborough. You've got to put it you know, put both of those things in the right perspective. Um so that's why, you know, I felt I could I could be drawn back to the game and enjoy it. Uh, but but like so many people, so many people they went through this long period of disillusionment and sadness, people of my generation. Thanks a lot, Phil, for your time. Thanks for sharing your stories. Um, a real pleasure to, to, to sit and get those kind of stories from you. But, I mean, just to finish on, on, the, on this team right now and how much joy they're, they're bringing all of us. And we've got a European Cup final to look forward to. But, I mean, whatever happens, it's been a fantastic season to be a Liverpool fan. It has. And what I really like about the way it's been, I mean, I, I kind of get concerned when I see the, the tweets and the nastiness that's around um, attacks on Jurgen Klopp uh, or the uh, attacks, attacks on the team. Um, they're completely unwarranted, and I'm not saying that as a biased Liverpool supporter. These are part of a generation that is changing football. Um, Pochettino, it's, it's fitting that we're playing them. Uh, you look at Manchester City and the development of Manchester City. These are totally different era managers, you know, we're looking, you know, we're looking, I'm not going to name names, but we're not looking at the dinosaur manager anymore. We're not looking at the dinosaur club and the fans have got to, in other clubs, the fans have got to keep up with this. They've got to really adopt it. They've got to make sure that the racism, the sexism, the vitriol, the nastiness goes from the game. You know, I think Liverpool are really making a big effort in that. And I think it's sincere and I think it's led from the top. I think it goes right through to the board. 
It's certainly the chief executive's wish. But, you know, Jurgen Klopp um, is so um, brilliant at showing, wearing his heart on his sleeve, but keeping his mind, his intellect alive in his head. You know, you can wear your heart on your sleeve, but you've really got to be able to produce the goods, and he has. Um, for a team to miss, for, for fans and a team to miss, you know, the record number of points, and yet you don't win the league. We all know it turns on one goal here, one goal there. And good luck to them. Good luck to Vincent Company. You know, what a great goal it was. And that's the difference. Or the, the hit post against City, you know, um, earlier in the season. But the real issue isn't that. The real issue is we're in a new era of football. Our fans sense it. I certainly feel it. And I don't. I, and I think it's despite the big money in the game, you know, it's, it's not because of the big money in the game. It's despite that. That can be, you know, we saw it with agents and all the rest of it. That can undermine the game. But for me, it's the, it's, it's the way in which it's now turned into that great passion. And I just feel that um, whatever happens in the, in, in the European Cup final, I do think we'll win. But whatever happens in it, we're seeing two good managers, two very good men, two good man managers and two good clubs. And I think that's the way we've got to look at it from now on and get rid of this um, awful vitriol that we've seen undermining the great things, you know. And, you know, never again should we ever um, tolerate racism, sexism on the terraces, never. And, you know, we have to make sure that the, the, the competition, the, 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 the um, critique, criticisms we have of other clubs, the feelings we have towards other clubs never spill over into hatred. That can never happen. I just hope those days are now gone. Uh, and I think these are, the, um, these are the kinds of managers who are making that difference. Well said. Uh, huge thanks again to Professor Phil Squinton for joining us. It's been a lovely Monday morning. Um, lovely way to spend it. Um, I hope it goes well this evening. Thanks as well to Lizzie Doyle, who's produced and also put all this together. And that's been uh, Desert Island Goals for the Anfield Band. Sports Social Podcast Network.